You're listening to a message from Christian Life Ministries in Coventry, a dynamic, growing church in the heart of the nation. We pray that God will speak to you through this word and impact your life for His glory. Well, today, as Martin said, it's the second week in our Invited series. And before we go any further, I'm going to invite us to pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your church. We thank you for brothers and sisters, for the welcome in that you have given to us. We simply invite you now by your Holy Spirit to be present, to take your word as we look at it, to open it up to us, to help us to get in line with your word, with your truth, with your heart, in the way that will bring life and blessing to our lives. So we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, as Martin said, we began this series last week, and he began speaking about the world and my table. And really, he was unpicking for us, or beginning to unpack, that the finished work of the cross of Jesus Christ, that which brings us into fellowship with God, into a relationship, that which offers us a place, if you like, at his table, it's an invitation into a new family. It broadens the family that we all belong to. It broadens the people that we're called to reach and who joins me at my table. And he began by taking us to Acts chapter 8, and we looked at Philip and the Ethiopian. And he was helping us to see that in uh, that this gospel message, it demands connection from us, destroys barriers, provokes depth as we sit down together and produces growth. And if you missed it, I do recommend that you catch up with it on YouTube, where you can also find last week's diversity stories, where we heard from Mark Beswick and Dagmar Diaz. Martin also introduced for us last week the Dine at Mine Challenge, uh, acknowledging really that most of us can tend to gravitate towards those for whom it's easiest for us to connect with, those who are like us. And we're encouraging everyone during this series to open their home and to invite someone for food or for coffee and cake or whatever it is that you can manage, but ideally to invite someone who isn't exactly like you. We're inviting you to sit down with others and perhaps to ask them, what is your story? If the people in your house make this a difficult thing to do, because I know some people will share a house with people that makes this uh, awkward, well, why not meet them for a coffee somewhere else? Why not uh, see if someone else, uh, you could join them in their house? But let's all of us think about how we can engage, how we can dine, connect with someone else. I don't know if you've ever sat at a table and not quite felt that you should be there. Perhaps in a new job, a new setting, you're unsure of how welcome your contribution is going to be. Perhaps you felt nervous in a setting or not relaxed. And of course, it's in those moments when we're not relaxed that we're likely to do something a little bit more embarrassing. Not long after we were married, I was in my early 20s. Martin was working for Walker's Crisps. And for some reason that I don't fully recall now, we found ourselves in a restaurant with some of Martin's colleagues and uh, some important people from the business. I didn't know anyone other than Martin. But at the table, I found myself sat opposite uh, a gentleman called Tom Cusio. Tom Cusio was the European director for PepsiCo, who owned Walker. So this means he was like my husband's bosses, 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 bosses. You get the idea. He was, he was way beyond. Uh, more important probably than anyone I'd ever sat at the table with. 
I was in my early 20s. I'd not long started working as a physio. I was a bit shy. I had a lot of insecurities. And in that setting, I felt totally out of my depth. The people were very nice. It wasn't that they made me feel something, but all I could think of is, what am I doing here? I felt I had nothing to say, nothing to contribute, which wasn't strictly true, but that was how I felt. I have since learned from, uh, from that and from other things. So actually, you can always take a genuine interest in anyone and ask them some questions. It doesn't need to be awkward, but I hadn't really learned those life skills yet. So I sat there nervous, self-conscious, feeling like maybe I shouldn't be at the table. And in my nervous state, as can happen, I then made a mistake. I managed to knock over my full glass of drink, but managed to catch it before all the contents hit the table, which you would think was a good save. But instead of the liquid going across the table, it literally all went down my sleeve. Not good, not good. I managed to catch it, managed to save it, but I'd now got a whole glass of fluid down my left sleeve. The other people at the table, there were conversations going on. Nobody seemed to have noticed. Of course, maybe they were being kind, gracious, just not drawing attention to what was happening. But my clumsiness appeared to go unnoticed. And so what I tried to do then was kind of see if I could get as many napkins as possible and stuff them up my sleeve to try and deal with the sheer quantity of fluids uh, that I was now wearing. All the while, I was trying to look calm, try not to look embarrassed, not to look flustered, to stay engaged with what was going on at the table and trying not to look like someone who frankly shouldn't be at the table. I fell out of place. I didn't need to, I'd been invited, but I felt unsure. There's no poignant message particularly from that story. I'm just introducing the idea of how we can feel sometimes at the table. I'm fairly sure all of us can recall the time we've walked in somewhere, been somewhere, whether at school or college, in a social setting. Somewhere we've walked in, we've looked around, we've not been sure if we're welcome, not been sure if we're wanted there, probably especially if we look different or we feel different or we know we are different in some way to the other people who are in the room. It's a very powerful feeling. Am I welcome? Am I safe? Am I truly invited. Of course, at God's table, none of us deserve to be there. None of us have earned a place. Each one of us has only been invited through the work of Christ on the cross. He's opened a place for us at the table. As Martin has already said those words from Luke 13 that Jesus said when he's in Israel making his way to Jerusalem, he says, people will come from the east and the west, and the north, and the south, and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Because at God's table, everyone is invited. And the title for today's message is just that, everyone is invited. I've heard it asked, I've engaged with some people wrestling with the question, is Christianity a white man's religion? That might be a surprising question for some, but of course, some of the missionary endeavor that has taken place, particularly in the 18th and 19th centuries, it was white European Christian missionaries going out, sometimes alongside, sometimes in tandem with European colonialism, which was a very long way from the Christian message to bless and to serve, but they were all mixed up together. And the legacy of colonialism that continues to be complex and painful for many 
can lead to some having questions like this about Christianity. Of course, the answer is absolutely not. But it is important for us to revisit Scripture, to look, what is God's heart? What is his purpose for the church? What was his design? What are the truths and the certainties that are in God's word about who he is inviting? So today we're going to take, if you like, a bit of a bird's eye view of Scripture. We're going to visit Genesis. We're going to visit Revelation. But don't worry, it's not going to take all day. We're going uh, to go quickly. We're going to stop off at a few points, particularly in Acts and with the early church. And we're going to see that whilst man's sin does sometimes obscure it, that God's heart has always been for a diverse church where everyone is invited. So we're going to jump in at Acts. We're going to get our bearings with the early church, and then we're going to dip back into Genesis. If you've never read the book of Acts and how the church got started, I would encourage you to do so. It's full of action after the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And we began there last week in Acts 8 as we looked at Philip sharing the truth of Jesus with a convert to Judaism from Ethiopia. Philip had been in Samaria before that. He'd, he'd gone there because Stephen had been stoned in Jerusalem. There was persecution of the Christians. The Christians were leaving Jerusalem just to stay alive. But as they went, as Philip did, he was sharing the gospel in Samaria, seeing people get saved, healed, in fact, bringing great joy, it says, to that city. So this was all going on. This is about a year after Pentecost, just to help you get your bearings. So the disciples were fleeing. As they went, they were telling other Jews, converts to Judaism in different places about the gospel of Jesus and the salvation that he offered. Now, Saul, we probably heard of, one of the persecutors uh, who caused the scattering of the church, about four years after Pentecost, when the Spirit was poured out, he got converted. He encountered Jesus Christ on a road to Damascus, had a vision, uh, but he came to believe in him, stopped persecuting, but went back to Tarsus, which is somewhere in Turkey. So the church of Jesus, this family, was continuing to grow and to spread into new locations. And one of the key new locations it spread to was a place called Antioch. I wonder, can I hear you say Antioch? Antioch. Antioch is in modern-day Turkey, close to the border with Syria. And uh, we kind of arrive there in Acts First at Acts chapter 11, and this is now probably about 12 years after Pentecost. This is what we hear about the church in Antioch. This is Acts 11, 19 to 26. Now, those who'd been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So Barnabas is sent to Antioch to check out what's going on because loads of people are coming to faith and they're not just from a Jewish background. It seems that some here for the first time are from a Greek background, not converting 
first to Judaism. So Barnabas went to get Paul, knowing that Paul would be a great teacher because he was an educated man. And then they stayed there in Antioch and taught lots of people. And we get told that the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. This is a significant place. This is an impactful place. And we're going to find out a little more about the church. Acts 13 tells us this. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. So after they'd fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and they sent them off. Okay, so by the time we get to Acts chapter 13, it's about 18 years after Pentecost, after the pouring out of the Spirit. The early church is nearly 20 years old, and a church has been planted and is growing here in Antioch and is about to hit a pivotal moment. You see, this prayer meeting, this moment where they're praying and fasting and God is speaking to them, is telling them to send out Saul and Barnabas, to go out as missionaries, send two of your most impactful leaders, God says, not just to the Jewish people, not to those who've converted to Judaism, which was the pattern that the disciples had been following, but to go out to those who are Gentiles, Greeks, non-Jews. Now, I'm guessing that most of us here in the room are not ethnically Jewish. If you are ethnically Jewish, you are very welcome, and we're delighted that you're with us, but most of us are not. And I wonder if maybe if this moment hadn't occurred in the church, if the disciples had just kept going to those who were converts of Judaism, maybe the message, the invitation, wouldn't have come to you and to me. Maybe it wouldn't have reached us. This is a key moment for the church. And thank God that they they prayed, they fasted, they listened, they did what God asked them to do. And the invitation to God's table went out with Saul and Barnabas to people and to places beyond where it had done, eventually reaching even us. They went with a message that everyone is invited. If we just zoom back out from Acts for a moment, because I think Saul and Barnabas must have understood some fundamental things about the heart of God that enabled them to go out with confidence with this message. I think it's because they knew the scriptures and they had come to understand God's heart. And so we're just going to track back, if you come with me, right back to Genesis right at the start. You know, the first 11 chapters of Genesis, really they're setting the scene of the creation of the world and the start before Abraham. And then in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham. He is going to be, if you like, the father of this family. He's the one who begins this nation, Israel, that God was creating. And in Genesis 12, we get the call of Abraham. And he says this, he promises this to Abraham. I'll make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great and you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples on earth. He's not just saying, Abraham, I'm going to bless your family. He's saying, all peoples on earth are going to be blessed through you. All peoples, all nations. The root word really, it means like every tribe, every family is going to be blessed through you right here at the start in Genesis. Here is the word, the view of God's heart that everyone is going to be invited. 
It's going to come through Abraham, but the invitation is not just for his family. The blessing is not just for his family. It's going to be for all families. So as we read through the books of Genesis, you've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you see the blessing reinforced, the words passed on through each generation, onto Jacob's offspring. And so when you get to the latter part of Genesis, we come to Joseph, Jacob's son. Although it didn't look like his life was going well, he was used to save and deliver, to bring a way through a devastating famine that was impacting Egypt, in fact, impacting the whole region, including Jacob's descendants. So Joseph brings blessing, not just to his own people, to Egypt, to the whole region. Through you, all families will be blessed. If we were to move on through the Bible into Exodus, if you know the story, a few hundred years passed and Joseph's descendants became enslaved. They were in bondage. They were having to labor. And God uses Moses to rescue them and to bring them out. Something really interesting happens as they leave uh, Egypt. If we read in Exodus chapter 12, it says these words, the Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Many other people went up with them and also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. Many other people went up with them. Many other people. The literal translation here, it says there was a mixed multitude that went out. That as Moses led God's people into deliverance and freedom from Egypt, others went along with them. Others said, that's where the blessing is. I'm going with them. And they were allowed to go with them. I don't know if they also plundered Egypt as the Israelites did, but they went with them and they enjoyed the blessing of God. As you track through the Old Testament, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the law is given to God's people. God's giving them ways to live, the pattern for the kind of lives they will live and how it will look. And there were instructions given as to how others could join them, how they could live with them and follow the same way of life and be part of what God was doing with his people. They were to be a distinct people. They were to live differently, but others could join with them and live the same. And so through the Old Testament, we see some high-profile outsiders get involved in God's story. If we land in the book of Joshua, we would come across Rahab, an inhabitant of Jericho who ends up becoming part of God's people. We come across that she gets a whole book, Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite or Moabitess. She was not one of God's people, but she was a noble woman. And she ends up being the great-grandma of King David, the most esteemed king of the Old Testament. And Ruth gets written in to the story. She ends up being part of the genealogy of Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus. If we went on to 2 Samuel, we might come across Obed-Edom, the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God's presence uh, dwelt, had been captured by the Philistines, and it ends up being looked after in the house of Obed-Edom. He was not an Israelite. And yet the presence of God dwells in his house, blesses him, blesses his household so much that the Israelites go, have you seen what's happening in Obed-Edom's household? We need to get that thing back here because we need that blessing. But Obed-Edom became embraced by the people of God. He was part of the story of God's people. From Genesis to 2 Samuel, all families will be blessed. Everyone is invited. Not everyone chooses to come. We see that again and again, but everyone is invited. 
If we skip a little further through the Old Testament, we would come to Isaiah, the prophet. He was speaking to Israel in a season where actually God's people had kind of lost their way. They'd rebelled against God. They'd opted out of God's table, and they'd ended up in exile and bondage. And God, through the prophet, was reiterating his invitation to his people, spelling it out again what it would look like. And he says these words in Isaiah 56. He says, and foreigners, that's all of us who are non-Jewish, foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I'll bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations." The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, he said, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. God's heart was to bring Israel back, but to also bring others with them, to gather others too. Throughout the Old Testament, when you read it, God's heart is for all nations, all nations, all families, all tribes, all peoples. As we skip through beyond the prophets, there were a few hundred years where nothing really was spoken, but we get to the life of Jesus. Of course, those words from Isaiah will resonate into the life of Jesus. Maybe remember the one time that Jesus is reported to have been angry was when he went into the temple and there was buying and there was selling, there was all sorts going on. And Jesus said, you need to get out of here because my father said, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. He was angered by what he saw because he was passionate about the building of a house of prayer for all nations. And although it's true that Jesus' ministry was mainly to Jewish people, he was often drawn into helping others too. You may remember a story where he uh, goes to help a man who is demon-possessed and sends the spirits into a herd of pigs. The very fact that there was a herd of pigs means this was not a Jewish area. These were non-Jewish people living in non-Jewish ways. And Jesus' compassion and power comes and brings deliverance. He healed the daughter of a Greek Syrophoenician woman. His compassion kept overflowing to those beyond the Jews. In fact, Jesus often extended the invitation to those who the culture said were outsiders. Levi, the tax collector, who literally joined him at his table, Zacchaeus, Mary Magdalene, they were all viewed as outsiders for different reasons. But Jesus demonstrated that everyone is invited. And of course, he goes to the cross. And after the cross, as he speaks to his disciples and mandates them, Matthew 28, he says, All authority on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. All nations, it's there. And we get the words in Acts 1 verse 8 where Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. He says, my Holy Spirit will come on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's like as Jesus uh, completes the beginning of the bringing of his kingdom, as he is about to ascend, he knows he must emphasize. He knows he must remind the disciples. He knows it's critical that they understand that the heart of God is this is for all nations. This is for the ends of the earth. This is not just for the Jewish people. This is not just for the insiders. But everyone is invited, particularly the cross 
had changed everything. It opened up the way. The veil had been torn. Everyone could come in and sit at the table in a different way. And of course, as Jesus ascends to the, the throne of God and the Holy Spirit is poured out, we read of that in Acts chapter 2. It sounds curious when we read it of this speaking in tongues, this speaking in different languages that happens to the disciples. But what happens essentially is the Holy Spirit is poured out at Pentecost. It's a Passover celebration and Jews from all nations have settled, have come to celebrate in Jerusalem. And as the Holy Spirit is poured out, the disciples are all speaking different languages they haven't learned, which means everybody there can understand something of the gospel of Jesus Christ in a language they understand. Could God have made it clearer that his heart is for all nations, that the gospel was for all nations, that everyone was meant to hear this message, and he was using his power, he was sending his spirit to ensure that just that would happen. Everyone is invited. I hope you can see that through the scriptures, God is building a diverse church. He's seeking to bless all nations and all families, issuing his invitation to the ends of the earth. And of course, in Revelation, we get a glimpse of what it will look like in heaven before his throne. Revelation 7 verse 9 says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, wearing white robes, holding palm branches in their hands, crying out, salvation belongs to our God. Our destination is a place where there will be people from every tribe, every nation, every language, every kindred. This is the church God is building. This is the people he is gathering. We're going to just descend again from this kind of big bird's eye view back down into the church of Antioch. And I just want us to notice some of the details of what is going on in this church and what the church looks like. So we're going to go back to Acts chapter 13, 1, 2, 3, and see what we are taught about these prophets and teachers. You see, we're told there was Barnabas, there was Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, and Saul. Don't know if that's how you say it, but we're going with that for now. This group of leaders, they were the ones who responded to God. They responded and sent out their best to spread the invitation wider. But these guys who were leading the church, this was a diverse bunch of leaders. You see, Barnabas, Barnabas was a Jewish European. We get told elsewhere in the New Testament that he was from Cyprus. Simeon was an African black man. Lucius of Cyrene was a black man from North Africa. Manaean, part of Herod's court, was probably a West Asian man and a Jew. Saul was a Jew from modern-day Turkey, a West Asian who spent a lot of his life in Europe. So less than two decades after the church had spread from Jerusalem, here in Antioch on the border of Turkey and Syria, we have an ethnically diverse church. It had been planted, it was growing, it was praying, it was about to expand further. And through the missionary journeys that followed, the gospel spreads across Asia and Europe. But already the church that was being built was a diverse church. And the leadership of the church was also diverse. And if we were to look at the key influences who 
who spoke into the church in the centuries that followed. We don't have this in the Bible, but we can find this out from history and theology. Many of the key teachers, pastors, scholars, theologians, they were diverse. There were many Africans. There were many Asians. There were many Europeans, although they generally came a little later. I'm sorry to say there were no Australians or Americans. So if you are from those lands and find that offensive this morning, please don't take offense at me. It's just there wasn't really established communication across the globe with those regions at that time. We didn't have people joining in from the other side of the world, but it's great that Rebecca Walker's able to join us as she's gone to Sydney. But there were Africans. I think we're going to see some pictures up on the screen here. You may be familiar with some of these names. You may not. Oregon from Alexandria, Clemens, Tertullian, Athanasius, who some would say was the greatest theologian in the Eastern Church, and Augustine, who some would say was the greatest theologian in the Western Church. These were African men. The early church fathers were African men leading voices in the church in the second century AD. There were also key theologians who were mainly from West Asia, Ignatius of Antioch, Basil of Turkey, Gregory Nazianzus, Gregory of Nyssa, John Chrysostom. You may, if you read theology, you'll have come across some of these names. They don't look quite so flattering in the pictures. They don't look very happy either. I do believe that joy was also part of the gospel, but I think uh, portraits have changed a little. These are some of the key voices as the church grew and spread. And then a little more recently, there were Europeans. Ambrose, Bishop of Milan. Thomas Aquinas, who was Italian. Martin Luther, German. John Calvin, born in France, bore much of his influence from Geneva in Switzerland. They came later as the church spread across the nations, as God had desired and mandated it to do. It was already a diverse church with key voices, faces that were African, Asian, European. God's heart has always been for a diverse church where everyone is invited. I wonder if I can invite the band up to join me. Does this mean that every church should be ethnically diverse? Well, it probably depends upon the context. Of course, there's some places, rural places in this nation and in probably every nation of the earth that has rural areas where there is no ethnic diversity. It's not possible. It's not realistic to grow a diverse church there. But the church of Jesus should be seeking to be as ethnically diverse as its context, open to all, seeking to reach all, being a place where everyone is invited. Of course, here in Coventry, in case you've not noticed, it's a very diverse city, a wonderfully diverse city. To express the heart of God here, we will be a diverse church, reaching out to all peoples, all families, all nations in our city, becoming a house of prayer for all nations. When we look in scripture, it's clear that everyone is invited. I think for most of us at CLM, we deeply value the diversity of the church because we know it reflects something of the heart of God. Here, you may 
you may have done this already, but we invite people who come to CLM to go on a discipleship journey called Rooted. It is far and away the best discipleship tool that I have ever come across. And I think it's partly because it was written by a Kenyan from Nairobi. Initially, it was called Mazizi, Rooted in Swahili. But it was then developed with input from men and women from Uganda, Haiti, Democratic Republic of Congo, Mexico, Sri Lanka, and America. Wow. Across the nations, we managed to do well when we work together. We're currently exploring and trialing a one-to-one -one discipleship tool that's been developed in Iran. It's currently available in Persian and English, a simple tool that's been developed to serve what is possibly the fastest growing church in the earth. See, God's heart is for a diverse church. His gifts, his anointing, they're spread across the globe, across the nations and the cultures where he's at work. Everyone is invited. Of course, that then leaves us with the challenge of working that out together, of living that out together, of different languages, dialects, accents, different cultures, priorities, preferences, and perspectives. It can be uncomfortable. It can be challenging. We can get it wrong. We can hurt one another. We can obscure the beauty of what God is building in the earth. But friends, in Christ, in Christ, and through Christ, and with Jesus Christ at the center, God is empowering us to be the church that is in his heart and has always been in his heart, a diverse church, an extension of God's table where everyone is invited. As we conclude, before we worship, we're going to pray and simply respond to the Lord and ask that he would help us to be this church, to live out what is in his heart, to become the church that he desires. And I could pray, and I'm passionate about this, I could pray. But instead, this morning, I've invited some others to join and to pray. And I've asked them to come and to pray in their mother tongue, which is not English. So I wonder if I can invite you up here. Sylvia grew up in Pakistan. She's going to pray for us in Urdu. Do come. Non is going to pray for us in, in Debele, which is a language of Zimbabwe. Jack is going to pray for us in Kikuyu, which is a language of Kenya. And Doris, are you here? You're going to come and pray for us. Wonderful. In Romanian. You've got a microphone there. Oh, you got it. You're on it already. Brilliant. I wonder if I can invite us all to stand to our feet. Thank you so much. It's good to see you. Thank you. But this isn't um, now for us to watch people pray in another language. I'm going to invite us to pray together. You might want to pray in English. You might want to pray if there's a language that is easier for you to pray in. If you want to pray in the language of the Spirit, I wonder if we might begin to lift our voices together and simply to cry out that the Lord would help us. So help me to respond to this message, Lord. Help me to walk in what you're calling us into. Help us to become the church that you have desired. And as each one of these prays in their language, let's just agree together. Let's pray together. Let your voice also be heard as they pray. Sylvia, would you lead us? 
Amen. 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 I wonder if we can lift. Yeah, let's applaud them. Thank you so much for sharing with us. Who wants to go down? Thank you. And as Mark and the band just get ready to lead us, let's lift our voices together. Let's raise our voices. King Jesus, we thank you for the church that you have invited us into. Raise your voices. Let's pray together. Let's make a sound. We lift you up, Jesus, as our King and our Lord, our Savior, the one who has made a way at the table. And we come in and we say, help us to make this table a place for all nations, a house of prayer for all nations, where every person knows they are welcomed and that you have made a way in for them. Jesus, be exalted and be glorified. Be made visible here, we pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen. <laughs>